Good afternoon, everyone, and a very warm welcome to this afternoon's lunch hour lecture. My name is Laura Crane, and I work at the Centre for Research in Autism and Education, housed within UCL's Institute of Education. And today I have the enormous pleasure of chairing a lecture by my wonderful colleague, Dr. Georgia Pavlopoulou. And it's entitled Autism and Family Mental Health, Shifting the Narrative. Georgia refers to herself as an early career researcher, as she was only awarded her PhD in developmental psychology and mental health from UCL last year. However, she is a hugely experienced researcher and practitioner, having worked in educational and healthcare settings with typically and atypically developing populations for almost two decades. Georgia currently works across UCL's Institute of Education and at UCL's Anna Freud Centre. And in both of these roles, in her teaching and in her research, her activities are hugely innovative and creative and impactful. And the thing that impresses me so much about Georgia is the way that she works so exceptionally hard to ensure that her work makes a genuine difference to the communities with which she collaborates and how she carries out her work with such a high degree of integrity and empathy and compassion. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about some of Georgia's latest research today. And I very much hope that you all enjoy it too. Now, Georgia will be taking questions at the end of the talk via Slido, and information about joining the Slido should be in the event information that you've received and should also be available on the screen at the moment. And now I have the enormous pleasure of handing you over to Georgia to tell us more about her work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Laura. It's a great pleasure to be here today. Sharing really my, my short learning journey in the, in the world of research and how I have uh, started conceptualizing and working with autistic, autistic and non-autistic siblings as a way to understand more and learn more about family mental health, family relationships. There is actually at the minute when we think about autism and talk about autism, <clears throat> in most cases we see photos. Uh, on Google and everywhere of brains, just like the one I have here. And in fact, there is an impressive volume of research, uh, medical research taking place right now, heritage research, neuroimaging, looking at different parts of the brain. Um, and much of this research is focusing a lot on the impairments, on the deficits, on the differences that autistic people have. And very often uh, there is this hypothesis that um, these differences and difficulties that autistic people have uh, are affecting negatively the, the family and they bring struggles to, to the people who live with and grow with autistic people. So there is very much an autism tragedy narrative that is almost inflicted, it's, it's socially constructed as well, and it's almost inflicted upon families. Um, and that can, can bring lots of distress to the families once they receive a diagnosis. And also, the way I have been thinking about that, and, and it's, it, it does distract us from the social determinants of mental health. So, for example, thinking about poverty due to lack of employment, thinking about lack of sleep, thinking of, about lack of opportunities to exercise or to do things in autistic, for autistic people to navigate a non-autistic world. So very much about what I'm going to talk today has nothing to do with the medical model. It's more about some professional and academic observations 
um, during my PhD years that led me to, 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 to present um, and to conclude to the work I'm going to present today. I'm going to make a short note again as well in, in terms of how do we see autism and how the way we conceptualize autism in our research is affecting the questions that we're asking and how this might also affect mental family mental health. Uh, I will do a quick evidence review about what we know about family life and well-being uh, and, and mental health. Uh, the need for something to change in relation to parents and siblings' experience and, and young people's experiences and the lessons I've learned from siblings. And maybe by that point, um, you might or might not join me towards thinking about how and why it is important to, to shift the narrative and the way we're thinking about autistic people and their families. In terms of professional observations, it has been a few years. I have been working for 19, almost 19 years now with autistic people and their families in both educational and health settings. And um, much of what I had a very traditional behavioral training when you work child uh, directly with a child, working on the deficits of the child. Um, then in the 90s, you learn a lot about how we need to involve people, we need to involve uh, families. And that very often meant that we involve parents as co-therapists so that autistic people can generalize good skills and, uh, and develop more typical behavior, if you like it. However, much uh, of my of the opportunities and the frustrations I experienced in, in my professional life have shifted me towards thinking, how do we move from fixing to mutuality to empowerment? How do we place in the heart of what we do autistic people and their families so that they become, through a collaborative process, um, partners in, in, in our clinical goals and research goals as well? So how do we make that shift has been a, a big question that is guiding both my research and practice. When I started thinking about siblings, um, I was I was a mental health, I was a director in a mental health unit in Greece, and it was the first time that I started hearing from working with parents and hearing from parents about the other child, and I'm like, fantastic! Uh, I've never thought of the other child, the siblings. I, I never had a fully uh, integrative and a fully systemic approach to my work, so I started reading about siblinghood in autism. And what I noticed quite early is that um, what we know about siblinghood sibling autism is mostly based on reports by parents, by teachers, by charities, by non-autistic siblings, even when they're asked. Um, and then there is a paradox. So when we look at statistics, genetics research, hard data, there is a lot about, um, there are lots, most of the findings are emphasizing the fact that uh, being a sibling puts you in a vulnerable situation in terms of developing a, a range of mental health or cognitive difficulties. Siblings being lonely, being forgotten, living in the shadow or, or being in a household chaos. These have been some of the descriptions. And then when you meet autistic, um, autistic and non-autistic siblings, they talk about how they see themselves in a position of agency, how much pride they take about being able to, to, to help and to enrich each other's life. Uh, when you, and then there's another narrative, more charity narrative about siblings being carers, being heroes, being resilient. And please note that in all of this um, volume of research, uh, the voice of autistic siblings and autistic people has been excluded massively 
from family research, which in many ways reinforces the devaluation of autistic people and takes us back to that medical model of deficit. Uh, Meltzer and Kramer in 2016 uh, are offering a, a fantastic critique about uh, disability studies and siblinghood. Um, in fact, I think it's also very, there, there are very historical issues that have led researchers to, to, to take such a decision to, to, to basically ask siblings and parents, how anxious are you? How depressed are you? These kind of questions. If, you, if, if we look back uh, at time in the 20s, um, there was an emphasis on how much of a damage for the family is uh, is is, the, is bringing uh, the autistic person, and in the 40s and 50s, lots of experts and psychiatrists and other experts in the field they were actually advising parents um, to send the autistic family member to an institution so that it doesn't harm the sibling and and the rest of the family. Of course, there has been tons of progress, thankfully, since then. And we know that, uh, in particularly, for example, in Europe, the psychiatric reform has been applied to a great extent. So more and more autistic children are growing up with their brothers and sisters at home. What has striked me is that uh, in, all the, um, in all the literature I was reviewing a few years ago, there was nothing about love, which I think it's the foundation, is everything when we think about family relationships. And it just made me wonder, why don't we look at relationships? Why don't we speak about love uh, when we think about autism and how autistic people grow? Why do we assume that this part of life is not the loving part, that the mutuality is not part of, of the life that uh, autistic and non-autistic people growing up together experience. Uh, and it, it made me think, why did I put that brainy thing in the beginning of my presentation and I didn't put something about love and connection? So, uh, and actually I got very inspired recently as well by Sarah Ryan in her book, um, where she speaks about finally love and she, and she gives lots of stories about how siblings love and connect with each other and the world. So much of what I'm going to talk about um, refers to love. And, uh, and if you think about it, many of us uh, are coming into the research world or into the clinical world, having a sense of love and a sense of duty. Uh, and also we do have tons of research that are, are suggesting that there is something about connection. There is something about this loving process, for example, active listening and respecting, uh, that is actually very therapeutic and is very much at the heart of, of what can help uh, when we're applying family-centered programs. In terms of academic observations, I think um, it is really worth it to consider the epistemological approach of this tragedy narrative and how children and teenagers, in particular children and teenagers with disabilities, have been viewed in research. Um, do we see them as uh, people who can, are experts in their own lived experience and they can be our partners, or do we see them as objects, something to research about? Um, the other, and I have uh, here the citizen participation ladder, which I, is very, it's, it's a very nice example of, of the different levels of, of sharing power really with our participants. And then another observation is very much related to what I, what, some, what sometimes qualitative researchers are calling as tyranny of the quantitative. There is something about asking all the time how anxious you are, how depressed you are, and then offering lots of complicated tables and statistics, which sometimes uh, 
although there is lots of value in mixed methodologies and in hard data, sometimes there is a danger to simplify the complexity of the human existence and almost denies the agency um, for autistic people and their families to, to express what is it like to grow up together. And that made me think a lot of an, uh, an, uh, my, uh, my ideolo ideological position, uh, thinking that hopefully we can view people in their local communities, people of all ages, people of all abilities, um, as having the human right to be involved in decisions that affect their lives, uh, including research, which does affect the narrative that then we have and the policies we then have about them and, and for them. Uh, also, as I said earlier, there are some concepts. The concepts that are used by governments, by researchers, by charities, very often are very different from the realities and the perceptions of the people we talk with in, 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 inside or outside the clinical room. Um, so it is really important to, to be able to, to elicit their views. It is also very, very important if we want to consider family mental health, to consider about how do we, when we approach autism research, how do we conceptualize autism? There is a number of published metaphors that have been used to describe autistic children as looking, uh, all looking at, at, at the autistic uh, existence from a deficit perspective. I, I have a few references here on that PowerPoint. Um, autistic people have been described as aliens, as mind-blinded, as puzzles, that's a very common one, as animals, as salvage. So there is something to consider there, uh, that popular um, scientific narrative must have an impact on parents who are just receiving a diagnosis. There are many examples of pathology and, and almost, if I can say, dehumanization of autistic people uh, when they have been described in research as uh, being economic burden for the community and their parents, as being incapable of having moral selves um, to define their personhoods or being very selfish and egocentric. So, there is, a clear, there is clearly a negative narrative which is inflicted upon parents who then are requested to intervene, to, to, to engage a lot in therapy, in early intervention. And it, over the years, it has made me wonder, what is it that parents intervene with? What is it that parents want to intervene with? And, and, and how much do we reinforce or not um, to look for goals. What, what are the goals we're looking for? Are we looking to decrease atypicality? Are we targeting the core autism traits? Um, and is that the price, um, a very high price to pay for the parents instead of working on acceptance and increasing acceptance amongst the family members, amongst, amongst our communities? I'll give you an example uh, well, um, on, on how um, autistic people are pictured as well. So, for example, in the first European Autism Conference in Athens, the, 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 the Greek national health system has decided for the publication of, of the proceedings of this conference to use the labyrinth, which is connected to the ancient myth of the Seas, who used the thread to successfully navigate the maze and the sword to slay the Minotaur. That's a very powerful uh, metaphor there. And then the very famous puzzle, uh, a white boy who is um, not having a good time, is, is weeping uh, and is suffering from a puzzling condition. 
how do we see siblings and family members uh, in, in popular science magazines? Um, this is a photo of uh, a typically developing child who is crying, is having a really difficult time next to the autistic child. And the quote from the editor next to that photo, um, it was sibling solutions, siblings of children with autism may benefit from early behavioral therapy. Now, if you have been a sibling yourself or if you have siblings at home, you know that conflict, just as love that I mentioned earlier, is, 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 is another part of relationship. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure why we choose always these unhappy kind of photos uh, to represent family life. Uh, a sibling, uh, that's a book that is, is meant to, to give suggestions to siblings um, and to talk about sibling life. And again, we see a very sad face. But what about the sibling skills, the siblings' abilities, all the different roles and the qualities that they bring into family life, which actually do have an impact um, on mental health? That's one question. And then my next question is that we are still missing the autistic expertise and the vast variety of experiences in research and practice. It almost feels like we value more the voice of non-autistic people about autistic people. Donna Williams, um, an autistic activator and author, she has written, right from the start, from the time someone came up with the word autism, the condition has been judged from the outside by its appearances and not from the inside according to how it is experienced. That's a very powerful quote for me. Uh, and then how, how do we consider autism? Do we consider autism as a deficit or as a difference? Because that's going to play a huge role on the type of questions that we're going to ask in research and the aims of how we're going to approach family practice. Are we looking for modification or are we looking for mutuality from empowerment? Theory of mind, one of the most uh, famous uh, psycholo uh, cognitive uh, uh, psychological theories to explain autism defines impairments um, in the ability of autistic people to recognize and understand other, others' mental states, and these may give rise to problematic interactions. So again, the burden lies and the deficit lies within the, 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 the autistic person. Um, an autistic academic, Damian Milton, he has spoken about the double empathy problem. And he actually says both autistic and non-autistic people are struggling to understand each other. So there is, there is a double empathy issue there. So their responsibility lies on both to try and understand and achieve mutuality. And then when we ask autistic people who we work with in research, they say, for example, John Adams, a good colleague, uh, says, I've that, that anxiety and depression I have suffered over the years is a result of my autistic mind having to cope with a neurotypical world, having to cope, having to navigate people who don't always understand me. And uh, when we talk about stigma and, and discrimination, I think it gets even more. Uh, and when we talk about voices that have been missed for research, we need to consider intersection intersectionality. We need to consider about um, black people's, Asian people's, uh, ethnic minority people's experiences. Um, Vanessa Bob and Pam Aculi uh, have recently done um, an interview for BBC, which I strongly, strongly suggest. It has some really strong messages about how as researchers we need to do more to include multiple uh, perspectives. So I'm going to jump now into what do we know about family life from, from previous research. 
I gave a little bit of historical context and also the, 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 the context of our current culture of how we represent through images uh, a, a bit of a tragedy narrative. Research pretty much followed the same. A large number of previous research in the 90s, early 2000s, suggests that much of the stressfulness of parenting in a autistic child emanates from factors directly related to the child's disability. So we keep on measuring um, the severity of autism, the severity of different behaviors, uh, and, and we're trying to see what predicts uh, what in terms of um, parental mental health. And we ask people again how anxious and how depressed they are. The types of questions and frames used in the vast majority of past literature have also reinforced negative narratives because I guess you get what you ask in many ways. However, there is much progress been happening the last 10 years in the field. And in fact, the negative um, impact hypothesis has not been proven. Research has been very inconsistent and we have growing evidence that suggests that the majority of parents of children with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities, including autistic children, do not have psychological problems at a level of clinical concern. For those parents or siblings who might have elevated anxiety or depression, these are totally reversible um, it can, issues uh, which can be addressed through social support through, through and, and through a range of, um, of, of, uh, of planning around struggles. So the negative impact hypothesis has not been proven, yet still specialists and researchers target core traits of autism, uh, very often dis getting distracted from the real struggles and what we hear from, as I will show you in a while, from, from research. Um, environmental, social determinant stressors, loneliness, not being able uh, to, to feel included and to feel that you belong in the society, lack of exercise, unemployment, early preventable deaths, uh, due to lack of um, access to the healthcare system and, and all these things, which we should start shifting considering the, in the ways they do affect mental health and family life. When we hear from parents, uh, that was from a project from 2009 uh, that was parents were really, really stressed and very, very anxious. But when, we are, when parents were asked by other colleagues why they are so anxious, they basically spoke about the fears and the worries they have about the future, the fears and the worries they have about how they are perceived by others as a difficult mother, um, uh, the fights and the struggles they had to navigate the school and the health system, how much they worry that people might just babysit and not to actually teach and empower their, their, their children. So there is something about, about the lived experience that can explain elevated uh, issues of stress and anxiety and low mood. And when we and when parents have been asked uh, about what they need, uh, Galfin and other colleagues from UCL have done a fantastic piece of work where they interviewed and surveyed parents. And when parents answered about what, what did they find useful, they spoke about a relational, a family-centered approach that includes all family members. Uh, that they want to be more in touch with professionals and experts who understand the specific needs and are able to personalize for the family, who are able to build close working relationships and who can also uh, um, reply in a timely manner to the parents. Caregiving and life enhancement, uh, they have been conceptualized over the years as being two very different things. However, in a very big qualitative survey data, um, survey uh, work, a uh, piece of work by Modlin and Saxena, 
um, they found out, so they put together the quotes from the siblings and the demographics, and they found out that the major, uh, the major finding, it was that the narratives of the youngest age group of siblings had the highest number of direct care quotes. Now, remember the narrative about the, the heroic or unpaid carer charity model about siblings. Well, uh, what was found in this piece of research, interestingly, is that this group of siblings also had the highest number of quotes indicating that their lives were enhanced by being able to offer love and to express love to the brother and sister. And much of what they were doing for the for the disabled brother or sister was coming from a place of love. As a lay, It was a labor of love. Thinking again about family mental health, uh, one of the reasons that parents might feel very, very anxious and distressed um, is uh, stress during the diagnostic process and later on uh, accessing mental health. Laura Crane, who's, who, who very kindly introduced me earlier, she has completed a fantastic piece of research, which if I remember were included more than 1,000 families. Um, and uh, they have expressed their anxiety about the diagnostic process and how 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 difficult it is to navigate that. So it wasn't much of a surprise when during the pandemic with um, fantastic colleagues, Rebecca Wood and uh, Chris Papadopoulos, we looked at the, uh, at the family experiences of people, of parents who, who are caring for, for an autistic um, child. And they said that the difficulties and the restrictions of the lockdown very much had a sense of familiarity, which is a very sad scenario to consider. So there were parents who were saying, this is our normal. I have always been struggling to access work due to enormous constant caregiving responsibilities and son not being able to access school full time. We heard lots of stories about parents who have been practicing social distancing to avoid being stigmatized in their local community. We have heard lots of stories about parents who have been uh, struggling to, to, to continue with the work because their children have been excluded from school. Every day is a battle with a teacher, a therapist, a neighbor. During COVID-19, we just felt as exhausted as ever. The guidelines are decided without any input from families, nothing new, and some, again, not being able to, 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 to attend school full time. There is a clear need for things to change. And when we think about the mental health services as well, and the, and, and the support that we're offering to, to, to families who are under stress, um, National Autistic Society a few years ago ran a campaign, you need to know, and basically one of the things that they thought that we should know is that less than half of the parents who have uh, uh, been at camps believe that the people, the, the psychologists and the other professionals at camps are able to communicate with their child. And 44% of parents find it difficult to get a first referral for their child, with a quarter waiting for over four months for a first appointment following referral which also can massively elevate anxieties. Another good piece of work from Laura Crane, a very participatory uh, model of work with autistic people, um, talking about their, autistic, their experiences of accessing mental health, um, doesn't give us any better results. Unfortunately, 90% of the participants had showed support from clinical services for the mental health, but levels of satisfaction again were very low, and only 10% had confidence with regard to accessing formal support for mental health needs. Although if I remember well, there was more than 81% of the participants who actually struggled with their mental health. 
it is important to change, to flip the narrative. And not changing is not really an option because we hear more and more in our clinical work and in our conversations with trusts and parents about how autistic people feel not important and their family members stigmatized, disempowered, scared, useless, misunderstood by professionals, and eventually dehumanized. So something needs to change, and something needs to change the old traditional model of someone being the researcher, being in lab, um, uh, collecting data, and then presenting this data to clinicians, and then the clinicians trying to, to, to impose whatever protocols have been created by researchers to the clients. It just seems that it doesn't work. Uh, so it is important to think of more collaborative ways and non-hierarchical ways of shared power for researchers, clinicians and service users working together if we aim to make progress in the field. I will tell you now about stuff that I have learned from siblings around family well-being and family's experiences with a very short intro, if you like it, on why to look siblings. Um, well, siblings spend a great deal of time together. On average, uh, when, when children are at home, 40 minutes out of every hour when at home, uh, is together. If you have a brother or sister, and this is me and my sister in this photo, uh, your brother or sister is the first person that you hugged, you kissed, you slapped, you had a fight, uh, you made up, you learned how to, has definitely helped us in terms of managing conflicts, developing perspective taking, um, and, and so many other from a developmental psychology perspective. Uh, it, it really serves on so many, on so many domains. 80% of autistic um, children and teenagers have at least one brother or sister, so that's a huge part of, of their life. And then, as I've mentioned earlier, previous studies have mostly focused on parental experience. So they want to know about siblings by asking parents. And then they have mostly used a priori predefined categories when researching for family experiences with a focus on behavioral and psychological adjustment. It is important to learn about the, the, the quality of sibling relationships and to focus on their relationships because actually a very robust piece of work uh, by World Waldinger and, and, and colleagues is actually showing that siblings' relationship can be the best predictor for depression even 30 years after. Knowing that autistic people are very much in a vulnerable position to, to, to for all the reasons that have, I have described, unemployment, stigma, lack of sleep, lack of exercise, are in a position, in a vulnerable position to actually develop uh, anxiety, depression, it's really important to invest to siblings' uh, relationship. It's really important basically to consider family relationships and wider social relationships as the, um, as the forgotten foundation of, of, of mental health. So the previous research around what we know about siblings' mental health um, has been inconclusive. On the, it's very useful to think about it as a spectrum. On the one hand of the spectrum, um, siblings have been presented as a risk population for adjustment problems, for peer problems, for having lower social behaviors, um, and all this stuff. On the other hand of the spectrum, there is admiration, there is satisfaction, there are positive, um, there, there are mentions about positive self-concept, interpersonal, and caretaking skills. It is really important to start moving from a deficit psychological functioning and negative framing and become more curious about 
what is happening in the relation on a relational level. As Ariella Melter very beautifully put it um, in her paper in 2018, it is important to understand how disability is embodied and enacted in everyday life. In the way that siblings and family members talk to each other, in the way they are sharing love, they are sharing conflict moments, they are sharing caretaking tasks and all this. And uh, in fact, relationships seems to be something that siblings as well give their consent uh, and, and consider as a priority. Back in 2016, uh, 18, uh, with Mary Mackenzie and Nikita Hayden, we co-established at Great Hormone Hospital, the Sibling Research Network, where we basically invited siblings to talk to us about the research priorities, about to give us feedback on our research projects. Um, and as you can see, from some uh, post-it notes here, the relationships was a key theme and the idea that and an idea that siblings definitely wanted further research on. Um, during these meetings, just just to, just to give an example, uh, referring back to that scale and the ladder of participation and and and, and, and ideology of participation. Um, I went to that meeting, uh, not as an expert, but as someone who is very curious, who wants to know more. And in fact, I had printed my consent form and my methodology plan and my protocols, um, and I gave them to the siblings. And uh, in post-it notes, they gave, me, they gave me feedback, which then I incorporated to my research. Uh, lots, and I know that Nikita Hayden at the minute, she's leading really good pieces of research that has been inspired by the siblings research network. We also asked the siblings um, in terms of knowledge exchange and the events that we want to do, uh, how can we involve them more? Uh, why, what do they think that researchers can share in research? Who should we should invite in knowledge exchange uh, groups and, and what role would they like to take? So it's about sharing um, decision making. And that's something that uh, was uh, a big part of, of my work, um, adopting a, a community-based participatory approach. Uh, and I will present you soon the result of this approach. Uh, so it's very much about uh, giving the opportunity to involve uh, participants to collect um, and analyze and determine the content of their own data, interpreting their own data, and then establishing priority things from them where both siblings, family members, and, research, and researchers can actually use to, to educate further the local communities. More, more details about this methodology can be found in one of our recent papers. I don't have all the answers, and I'm not claiming that I'm doing fully participatory research. That's a very big claim. It's a constant work in, in, in progress, and is a constant checking of, of how much you're sharing um, instead of having authority facilitating. So um, maybe I'm not the best person to give uh, full solutions or develop protocols, but, uh, but I, I think I have learned a thing or two. And I think some of the key ingredients for success very much have to do with uh, being curious, uh, showing mutual respect uh, and, and addressing uh, and recognizing and addressing power issues, um, be having this mindset of, of co-learning, learning from each other, and always balancing research and action. Uh, pieces of research uh, are really worth it to do, to, to, to gain a momentum in the community and, and results uh, to be shared in, in, in participants' preferred ways. And you see some snapshots here of how I have worked with autistic siblings where I, I started asking professionals and parents and then the siblings themselves to define, to help me what kind of methodologies they wanted to use 
And once we collected and analyzed data together, our siblings were co-researchers in my research, then they arranged different types of community events um, to, 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 to basically promote the autistic narrative, if you like it, about what is it like. So thinking of results, uh, what have we found in recent research? In a piece of work I did recently um, with a master's student, uh, and we asked uh, autistic um, uh, siblings who also, who also had lots of co-curing co co conditions such as epilepsy, learning disability, uh, and their mothers. We, we ran separate set of interviews that were photo-driven. Uh, so the agenda was very much open and we didn't go and ask them uh, what is the problem, how depressed you are, we just asked them to share aspects of their life. And both parents and siblings spoke a lot about enjoyment, love, conflicts, guilt, fear, stress for the future. So you can see that vulnerability and, and love coexist. So there is a possibility to, to have a healthy life uh, while you're managing uh, difficulties. And most of these difficulties are, were not expressed because of the child having a disability, but because of the lack of social support and, and systemic support. In, in another recent piece of work I did with sisters, when I went and asked sisters, so what is it, um, what is it like to live with autism? Uh, I got very nice feedback from, from sisters. Quite a few of them said, well, I don't live with autism. I, I live with my sister or I live with my brother. And the, 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 the siblings who participated in this research project, uh, they, they spoke, uh, I mean, the, the results showed how empathetic siblings are, how resourceful they are, how many, in how many, in many occasions they're actually modeling behaviors of acceptance and inclusive behaviors and modeling sensory modifications for the parents or for people in the neighborhood or for people at school to follow. They also mentioned how stressed they are about the future. They ask, tomorrow, today is my mom dealing with all these things um, and, 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 and the caring activities and negotiations about my brother attending the school. Who is going to do that in the future? Very much uh, the sisters, uh, the, the siblings in that project express the need to feel respected, the need to feel involved, involved to feel to, then the need to feel informed, um, to be able to access ordinary activities. Very, very often they mentioned that it's a huge, massive struggle for them to, to go to a restaurant or to do uh, ordinary stuff that others are doing. Not because my brother is autistic, but because of the of these eye gazes and the looks that people are giving us, uh, and and the fact that people will not tolerate um, or not adjust, um, so that my brother can also uh, be out with me. They also spoke about the need for the for the community to accept their siblings. As I said, they spoke about the fact that there is lots of awareness nowadays about autism. There are TV, you know, there are programs on TV, there are programs on the radio. Autism is a word that we hear so much more often nowadays. But they also mentioned that awareness doesn't automatically meet accept, um, mean acceptance. And also, uh, siblings in that project, in particular, reminded, uh, spoke about how they want to remind parents that there is no need to fix things. And they gave very vivid examples um, 
for example, about uh, bath or sleeping routines or lunch routines where autistic people had, their autistic siblings had a very specific way of getting on with things and the parents were very upset because they were thinking that that's, that's not a typical way of doing things. So what have I learned from siblings? I have learned from siblings that Siblings are not using a stigmatizing language, are not talking about disorder, they're talking about struggles. Nothing is, uh, <laughs> you know, just uh, all happy and pink. So they speak about the struggles, but they're not stigmatizing the, the disabled member of the family. Uh, it's more about the struggles that they are facing, actually, because all of them as family have been stigmatized. Siblings have been very much challenging concepts, concepts of normalcy in their local communities and in their families, in conversations with their families. They're not using the word disorder and have unmet needs, but they don't consider the needs complex. Complex, complex again, is just another word uh, that very often people use. And uh, an insider joke that we have with some of the clinicians I work with is that um, when people say, oh, that's a very complex case, it probably means that the person who is working on that case just doesn't have any depth of understanding of what is happening in people's life. Another key message is that uh, that, uh, that I took from, from this work with siblings is that they describe struggles that require attention. So there's nothing about their brother or sister being disabled, uh, have, having a diagnosis of autism and or learning disability is more interactions with struggling to fall asleep or, or, or staying asleep at night, uh, having limited access, as I already said, to ordinary activities, meeting their friends and having respite time. He also spoke about the lack of acceptance, the lack of opportunities uh, to be part. I spoke earlier about the lack of being able to, to take part to, to, to social activities in the community because of stigma and the lack of opportunities to these activities uh, that normally would cultivate positive feelings, thoughts and actions is actually putting um, siblings at risk for mental health problems. So again, there is something about the social determinants and not the existence of a family member who has a, a disability. <clears throat> um, and then I guess that helped me to, 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 to start framing things through a life world uh, model, an experience-based model that is rooted in humanistic psychology and is actually considering agency and vulnerability as equal um, parts and, and as a continuation of the human experience of siblings, rather just uh, considering negatives and positives. In, in, the, in the family life of um, autistic and non-autistic people, just like in any other family. Really. I spoke earlier about the fact that we don't hear often from autistic siblings. So a piece of research that I'm preparing now, it was my one of my PhD studies, uh, has to do about how autistic siblings um, talk about their families. Uh, so we ha I have collected lots of family narratives and they speak about how much their family can be very noisy, can be very demanding, um, how much they enjoy sharing technology games with their siblings, how important it is to have sensory like opportunities to have sensory relaxation, to steam, to do self-talk, how much they need more less homework, more time for hobbies, how much they they do enjoy to go for nature walks and practice brothers and sisters uh, and that's something that is in contrast with the PE lessons at school that they really feel that they cannot cope at times 
Um, and again, we used uh, videos and photographs uh, and I worked with the siblings to collect and analyze their own data. And these are the categories that they have created, the ones I'm, I'm presenting here. I think it was really interesting, uh, again, to see the spectrum of experiences. It was very interesting for me to, to hear from autistic siblings on how they consider themselves as um, inspiring members of their family. Uh, many of them have been writing poems from a very early age. Some of them are really good with music. Some others have a really good eye of detail. Uh, some of them have uh, very have sensory profiles, um, which for example, they can smell uh, things and they can, prepare, they can give a notice to mom that mom, you're gonna burn the cake. And they, they gave me these examples to, to, to talk about how much good they feel about their autistic identity and how much they feel they actually contribute to their families. They also said that they feel very inspired from their families and in particular from the time that they spend with their siblings at home and neighborhood and how much they learn new skills through the interaction with their siblings. They also, autistic siblings also mentioned a lot the fact that they don't want to be lonely but they do want to have as well their own time. They need to have uh, solar play, they need to have time to, to focus on, on their focused uh, interests, their special interests and their hobbies. And then the more siblings talk about what's happening inside the family, things are predictable, things um, are full of love and full of inspiration. And as they navigate the outside world, Siblings start talking, autistic siblings start talking about a sense of being different, of feeling different in the local community, of feeling overworried about conflicts in the playground, um, as an example that they, they have given, and, and how much they do rely on the, on the other sibling to come and, and help. Sometimes they said in one of the narratives that they shared that just knowing that my brother or sister is around at school is a huge uh, source of support. Most of the times I will not go to ask for support, but just knowing that he's around, it just makes me feel good. And then the struggle continues with routines and safety rules when they navigate the community. And again, the brother or sister has been um, very, very helpful and important to help them to, to, to deal with these routines. So, Again, there is a kind of paradox. The experiences of autistic siblings at home, they cultivate a sense of belonging. The sibling relationship is defined by the things that the siblings can do. Um, knowing uh, as well, they also very much uh, appreciate that they're, they're typically, the non-autistic or typically developing brother or sister very much understands what is their normal. They know when I'm flapping, they know when I'm uh, shouting, they, they, they can predict, uh, they know me. Uh, and also, because they know me, my brother or sister is able to create a flexible environment to accommodate my needs. Um, and, my, and, and together with my brother or sister, we can be creative in, in communicating and resolving issues. The experience in the community, when I don't have my brother or sister with me, can be quite different. I can feel the other. Uh, I can feel that my abilities remain hidden, uh, that people mostly focus on the things I cannot do, whereas my sibling relationship at home is very much defined by the things we both love, we can both teach to each other. Um, on the outside world, uh, I don't feel the norm. I feel very often I have been characterized that I'm creating troubles. So there is this kind of trying to fit to expectations, trying to, to navigate a non-autistic world. And uh, this is again where 
sibling love uh, prevails because siblings are mentioning about how they are in a position to protect each other as they navigate the world. I guess these, these narratives um, are, are reinforcing me to remain curious and to, and to employ a life world um, model, uh, which uh, is an, it's an existential uh, model to view well-being um, based on phenomenology, um, rooted in, in, in the lived experience uh, and committed to, live, to, to understand the lived experience of people. And um, in our recent work, we defined eight um, categories that we feel is quite important um, when we want to consider family mental health. And that can be applied to siblings, but also to parents and to autistic and non-autistic members of the family. There is something about the first dimension of insiderness, something about understanding the hopes, the fears, the struggles during the everyday routines and the personal and subjective views of, the, of our participants. There is also something about the sense of agency. How do we promote um, siblings, parents' abilities to take decisions with the researchers to, from the very early on to shape the research project and not to have a tokenistic um, kind of involvement later on. How do we help siblings to experience, uh, uh, to, uh, to, how do we basically recognize the uniqueness of the experience um, and also the many identities that they carry as a female uh, uh, or male, as a student, as a friend, as a sibling, um, uh, as a classmate, and how do we make sure that we accommodate sense-making, the siblings' interpretations, the parents' interpretations to be at the heart of what we do? And then how do we facilitate and understand their personal journeys? I think it is, it is really important for researchers and practitioners to be proactive on facilitating uh, each family's members' personal journey, planning and aspirations. Uh, and that's equally important for, for all these dimensions are, are, are very interconnected and very much um, can inspire both clinical and research practice. There's a sense of place, family members, siblings, autistic and non-autistic siblings should feel welcome, should feel safe across home, school and the wider community, should feel that they belong, should feel that they have a chance to celebrate their identities and, and feel sense to comfort because the sense of place has, has many different um, ways to be interpreted. And then there's the sense of embodiment, of being allowed to, 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 to understand and to embody my identity and to connect to both my challenges and my strengths. And finally, inevitably, when we think about relationships, I think is the, that quality of, of togetherness. Siblings should have access to people that they value, that they feel they can spend time with, they can share worries, happiness, disagreements, ask for help. Uh, uh, so there is that sense of togetherness. So basically, the dimensions I have described are, are, are having an inclusive focus rooted in the life world, uh, which um, brings me hope that they can actually contribute to this um, to what I, I spoke about earlier on, to shift that negative narrative. Um, and it is really important. One of the ways to shift the narrative is to actually employ participatory designs. So engagement with research uh, very often goes further than just having participants. Engaging individuals and communities to initiate, uh, advise us, challenge, collaborate with us. And it's very important not to just include people, but to, to actually involve them and empower them to take decisions. 
And uh, there's not a clear set of, it doesn't have to be qualitative or quantitative of mixed methods. It's more an, an attitudinal frame. It's a mindset thing. A scientific attitude which underlines the importance of empowerment through knowledge exchange as well, involving the public. In this photo, you can see, and I'm going to conclude here on how, on how important it is for the, uh, for it was for, for my participants to share the, their findings with the wider community. And in this photo, uh, we had invited people from local schools to actually see the photo voice exhibition to understand the key themes and to understand what is it like to. To, to be autistic or to have an autistic brother in order to, to smash the stereotypes. Again, it's all about engaging people as age, agents of change in the, in the community. Thank you so much for, for giving me this opportunity to present this work today. Uh, and if someone is interested uh, to learn more about siblings, apart from um, reading research, I think that is, or, or need more hunt information or even support, uh, I suggest you to, to, to have a look at SIB's charity website that, that has lots, lots of very useful information. Thank you so much. I will stop sharing here. Thank you so much, Georgia, for such a wonderful talk. It was great to hear not only about your research, but also the really innovative methods that you've been using and the really important and powerful messages that I think transcend all of your projects around participation and involvement um, and inclusion. So we have some questions um, for you. Um, most of the research that you spoke about today seem to be um, where the majority of the family or the parents and the siblings perhaps were um, neurotypical and it was the autistic person in the family. And I wondered, um, a question's come in asking, do we know um, anything about families where perhaps more than one person's autistic or, you know, there's more um, members of the family other than just one autistic person? Yeah, that's uh, that's really one of the big gaps uh, that in, in current siblings research. Uh, again, people are assuming that um, there is one family member for some reason, uh, and very often we, we we don't assume that neurodiversity can actually exist across all family members. It could be that all siblings can be autistic. It can be one or two, both parents can be autistic. Um, so that's that's so interesting to 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 consider, and also to consider not just in childhood. Most of my research has focused on on childhood, teenage years, young people, but also across the lifespan. It would be fascinating, knowing, for example, that we have very high rates of um, of suicide and suicide ideation in the autistic population. I wonder um, in what ways. Um, we can see as a foundation of good mental health, the sibling relationship across the lifespan and, and how this can be pro, can work proactively with that siblings uh, support each other um, in terms of good mental health. Okay. So to answer, to go back to your question, we really need to, to do more research considering the, the neurodiversity within the family more broadly. And you touched there as well upon the fact that, am I right that most of your research is focused on young people um, who have an autistic sibling? Do we know anything at all about how that relationship changes across the life course? Or has any of your research given us an indication about how it might even change across childhood? 
yes, I think across childhood is uh, is um, relatively in- easy to answer in a sense that what we have seen in the be- in the early years, uh, children uh, talk a lot about uh, differential, uh, you know, the different attention that they might feel they receive from the parents, or they talk a lot about conflicts. They talk a lot about love and shared time and place. Whereas teenagers, they take lots of pride about. Um, having very high morals, understanding uh, neurodiversity, um, wanting to advocate for a better world, or they talk about the struggle that they have to to have free time for themselves exactly because of this labor of love that can be very intensive. However, we don't know how that develops across the lifespan. Um, I have just completed with two master's students a piece of work where we look at um, autistic people's um, autistic and non-autistic siblings experiences and they very much have spoken about how they can uh, help each other with very practical stuff like uh, an autistic person who might struggle to visit the GP uh, and uh, we have some nice beautiful narratives about how the sister is nagging the autistic person it's time for you to go and do the check or might actually um, mediate this process to make it more easy for the autistic person um, have very preliminary results. And I think, again, this is a, a, an area that we really should consider more. And if you think of the narrative I was presenting earlier about the tragedy narrative, about the weeping white male child who is in a puzzling condition, I think one of the reasons why researchers haven't focused on research, sibling research across the lifespan, is that uh, they just cons- when, when they think of siblings and when they think of... Um, of all autistic people, they just think of children in many ways. And, and, and that that's one more reason why it is worth it to try to shift that narrative. And you mentioned there the autism tragedy narrative, and we had a question that came in about the fact that it seems quite deeply entrenched. And I know you touched upon this a little bit in your talk, but do you have any ideas about how to address this and particularly how it can be done without minimizing the challenges that many autistic people and their families face? Yeah, I think... uh is, is, is so important to, to facilitate autistic narrative. One of, one of the reasons um, participatory research really fascinates me is that is, is, is giving um, space for autistic people to, to reclaim their own narratives. I have been recently funded by UCL Culture. Um, it's a very small knowledge exchange program um, to, to, to give the opportunity to autistic people to work with researchers and artists, autistic and non-autistic artists, uh, to actually speak about what is it like for them, the sense of belonging, the sense of relationships, including sibling relationships. Uh, and, and we are focusing on what was it like for them during the pandemic, uh, what is it like during the pandemic, in particular during the lockdown. Uh, and, you know, there is, uh, for example, this myth about autistic people not having empathy. Uh, but most of the autistic people, all actually of the autistic people who are participating in our project, they are writing, they have chosen creative writing workshops uh, for, and photography and drawing. And many of them are writing poems. And all of these poems are full of love. They are talking about um, platonic love or sibling love. Um, Love about uh, so it, there is something there about uh, reclaiming. So one of the ways to to battle the um, and and to shift that tragedy narrative is to allow autistic people to talk about both strengths and difficulties. 
to see them and for us to see them uh, in both agency and vulnerability conditions. The fact that they're very, to give you an example, the fact that our participants are very, very able to write their own poems and to talk about love and how they, they experience life uh, doesn't mean that they don't suffer from anxiety and depression. But they don't suffer from autism. That's the difference. They suffer from anxiety and depression uh, from accumulating um, incidents in life of unemployment, for example, or from lack of sleep or from feeling stigmatized or from feeling misunderstood. So there is a range of social determinants. Um, very often there is this debate about neurodiversity and I think recognizing neurodiversity as, as a human condition uh, doesn't mean, doesn't exclude from attention, from actually planning and working and researching areas that, that are a struggle for autistic people. Super, thank you. We are running short of time, so I've got one more question for you. Um, but you spoke a lot about the positive aspects of autistic um, children and young people having a sibling. And do we know anything about supporting only children, who, so autistic children who don't have a brother or sister? Um, so what can be done to support them if they don't have that um, sibling relationship? It's a very interesting question. I guess um, the benefit that uh, you have uh, growing up with a brother and sis or sister is that you're you're learning very very early on. You want it or not, because you might resist as a small child. Um, uh, you know, your brother or sister is the first person that you're gonna. Sometimes siblings, for example, say these nasty things to each other that they will never consider to say to the outside world. And they learn how to forgive, they learn how to understand how to each other, how to share. Uh, so there's so many valuable lessons that you can get. Um, I guess um, when you don't grow up with a brother or sister, of course, again, we need to see people with both agency and vulnerability positions. It's about how do we plan um, for opportunities uh, to feel accepted, to be recognized, to celebrate their identity. I guess one big difference is that siblings uh, are, are guided with, lo from, with love and they have so much acceptance and they give an opportunity to autistic siblings from very early on to be accepted. Uh, as, 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 as sisters told me, uh, I don't live with autism. What do you mean? I live with my sister. I can't separate autism from my sister, um, which led me to change my whole interview schedule back then. Uh, because until then, I would say, what is it like uh, to be living with autism? You know, the tragedy narrative. So I guess if you don't grow up with a brother or sister, you can parents uh, and schools can still create opportunities to to reinforce that sense of belonging, that to, to celebrate their identity. Uh, and, and it's all about, I don't think there are specific methods. I have been thinking that for the last few years. It's more about an attitudinal framework. And this is where I found some core comfort in the life world model, an experience-based model, which is honoring the, the, uh, the experiences of people and helping to, to acknowledge both struggles and strengths without a dichotomy, thinking, or thinking, thinking is positive and negative. Because there is so much fluidity, really, in, in, in the human experience. Wonderful. 
Um, thank you so, so much, um, Georgia, for sharing your brilliant work with us today and for such a thought-provoking um, talk. And thank you to everyone who's joined us today. We really hope that you enjoyed it. Um, you will receive an email in the next day or two with a short feedback survey and also the upcoming schedule of lectures. And we hope to see you at another lecture soon. Thank you very much, everybody.